Claptrap, Episode 16, Vintage Baseball. Kyle here. This week we are going to have another solo episode, so I'm going to be by myself, but I will be joined by the fantastic guest, Ed Schumann. Ed is a vintage baseball player, but he's not only that, I would best describe him as the town troubadour, where he is a great storyteller, he's hugely knowledgeable about all the historic elements of the town of Canal Fulton, Ohio, and He's basically a walking encyclopedia, especially when it comes to baseball knowledge, as you'll soon find out. And Throughout the episode, we'll get to learn about his hobby of vintage baseball. So with that, let's get started. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Kyle, how you doing? It's good to take a minute and talk to you. It's that hot stove season, and I think we got a good topic here to, to fit with that. Yeah, it's end of February, and the boys of summer are already down in spring training, getting ready for the upcoming season. So what exactly is vintage baseball? You hear people talk about the dead ball era. Is it the same thing, or is this even a precursor to that? Well, compared to the dead ball era and some of the other eras that you're talking about, vintage baseball is a modern term that was created to describe historic baseball recreation. Uh, We're a group of guys who mostly were associated with museums or living history facilities, living history museums, and they were playing baseball by the original rules of the game. So we chose an era and we had the rule book in our case was 1860 and we dressed it the part and we even tried to get our spectators and our crowd. And, you know, some of our wives, friends and families came along and joined as costume interpreters on the sideline. One way to look at it, I tell people is civil war reenacting for sports fans. I know civil war reenactments used to be fairly popular because I remember back in like middle school, a group of Union soldiers coming to our school to show us all of their stuff. Have you ever played at an actual reenactment, like at Gettysburg or anything like that? No, my particular team has, I don't think, played maybe one time against a group of Civil War reenactors, but it is common among teams in the Vintage Baseball Association and those that play, you know, the broad term Vintage Baseball. A lot of times, Civil War reenactors, some of them even keep like the Beatles guide, which was the the rule book was called the Beatles dime guide of baseball. Erwin Beetle published it along with his series of 10 cent, you know, pamphlets. A lot of them keep them in their knapsack or they might keep a ball in their, in their knapsack. And, you know, when they're having a lull of their reenactment, sometimes they'll, they'll pull out a ball. And I mean, I've even heard of guys use like uh, shovel handles or the tail spike on a cannon, maybe for a, uh, for a bat just to get a game going. I know you were saying that your particular organization picked 1860 as the set of rules that you're using. Is there anything special about that particular year? Because I know like the first professional teams didn't come in towards the end of the century. Yeah. So 1860 was the time period that we chose as an association. The The years leading up to 1860, uh, there was a group known as the National Association of Amateur Baseball Players. And then in 1860, 
they had a set of published rules in that Beatles dime guide. And we were able to find copies of that. Not that there weren't other copies that existed, but that copy was available to us in modern times. And it became sort of like the best source material we had back in the 90s, because not only did it have the rules as they were written at the time, but it also had information from the convention. And it also had commentary from one of the period sports writers, Henry Chadwick. He was an Englishman who started his career as a cricket reporter for some of the early sporting pages, Leslie's, Porter's. Both of those, I think, were called Spirit of the Times. His reporting then carried over into baseball as that sport started to grow. And this was sort of an epicenter in the New York area. And then, um, But 1860 was what we chose because it was the first kind of well-documented, broadly published set of rules back then. And, and it sort of made sense for us because it had the most detail, but the earliest we could find at the time in the 90s. That definitely makes sense why you would choose 1860 as the basis for how you guys play the game. Speaking about some of those old newspaper columns, those guys really used to use some colorful language. You could definitely pick some SAT words out of there. I think just in general, it's called purple prose when people speak with colorful language like that. But Chadwick was bringing his English sensibilities and some of the regulations and customs of cricket to baseball which was really kind of evolving the game. It was more organized on the East Coast, but they were playing bat and ball games all across the frontier. You know, Cincinnati was the Wild West at the time, and there was known groups playing early in the, you know, 1830s or 40s. Or Again, this is where I kind of generalize on some of the dates, but there's some really good information out there. Websites like... Society for American Baseball Research has good information. The Vintage Baseball Association has uh, vbba.org has a good page. And uh, there's some good sites out there that tell you when that first was or the earliest that a lot of times people chase when they're doing baseball history or, or asking questions like, hey, when was the first time a team did this? And when was the first time of that? So. What are some of the biggest differences between the 1860s version of the game and modern day? I think the biggest differences can be summed up in a couple of phrases, but then the rest of it is sort of nuance and strategy that if you enjoy that part, you can work some of it into the game as you play. Some of it's not even noticeable to the, to the audience. So I'll use an example there. When the crowd's watching, only somebody who's really paying attention because we don't have uniform numbers or names on our jersey or anything like that. But the batsman or the runner that makes the final out, whoever follows him in the batting order is the next up. The first batter in your lineup could make it to third base, and then the next two batters get on base, and then the next two batters make an out. Well, if the first batter gets put out at home then for the third out, the second batter will come back up even though you were all the way down to like number six in the lineup so that's one unique thing the ball that we play with is larger than a modern baseball but smaller than a softball it's a 10 inch ball in some cases as small as nine and three quarter the rules from 1860 allowed for between 10 and nine and three quarter inches 
in circumference for the ball. It was to weigh about five and three quarter to six ounces, I believe, which is also heavier than the modern baseball. At that time, it was an X-shaped stitch out of one piece of leather, and those were called lemon peel balls. I don't know if that's 100% authentic, but that's what you'll find them called in auction catalogs and and things when when people are referring to different styles of baseball. So the um, the pitcher throws from 45 feet underhand, and the batter will stand astride a line at home that goes through the center of home plate rather than in a box. So it's not really a batter's box, but they may call it a box when referring to it, but but his position is is marked by a line. And home plate was circular back then. There was a circular plate that marked the pitcher's position. And so he would deliver to the batter underhand. In 1860, it was not yet in the book to call balls and strikes a strike could be called if the batter swung and missed completely and the umpire's duties mention that if a pitcher persists in not throwing fair pitches for the batter that he could warn him but no codified language in 1860 to give him a walk at that time some of these rules evolved quickly like over the next year or two some of those things became part of it uh, by i think by 1860 Three or four that uh, the balls, calling balls and strikes, were both in there after giving the batter warnings. The uh, the ball could be caught on one bound and still an out up until 1864. In 1865 was the first year that the organized teams began to play what they called the fly game. And a ball caught on the bound in foul territory was still an out beyond 1865 into the 1870s. And then just as a benchmark uh, to give you 1876 is what you were referring to then when the uh, professional leagues, the National League as we know it, began in 1876. You were saying that the pitcher's mound back then was only 45 feet as opposed to the modern day 60 feet, six inches. I can only imagine playing in the same rules and being a pitcher and having to throw underhand to some big gorilla like Travis Hafner or something. I can imagine there's some hot ones coming right back at you when you're playing this style of baseball. Well, it happens. Originally, the ball was being thrown in sort of, some guys call it in a feeder style where there was no intent to deceive the batter or, you know, impart any spin or so the ball was coming in on a slight arc at slow speed. As we've gotten more research, we know that the speed was was part of the game and that there were guys trying to throw harder. One guy specifically was known for his hard throwing. His name was Jim Creighton and he was an early uh, pitching star. He has an interesting backstory that it probably be going down a rabbit hole but uh to finish up on your question yeah when you're 45 feet away and you're throwing the ball on a low arc probably not that fast to guys who are used to seeing something come in a little faster they can come back at you pretty quick and also found out faster they go in the faster they come back out (laughs) so reflexes are good if you're going to be a pitcher you were saying earlier that you try to get people that attend the games to show up in period clothing what kind of clothing did the baseball players of the time wear are you still wearing wool kind of like the civil war soldiers 
Well, it was really interesting when we first got started finding out that a baseball uniform was as similar to a fireman's outfit as any other piece of clothing that you could relate to, or even uh, soldiers or band uniforms. Some of the early clubs had a shield on the front of their shirt, it had colorful piping around it, and a uh, and a monogram letter on the front, or I suppose some had symbols like a star or something like that. The baseball players wore long pants, which was something that was interesting to find out that, uh, you know, they didn't just start from the beginning wearing what we know as baseball pants. So I guess the players today that are wearing their pants on top of their shoes are, are not actually trend setting, but they're, uh, they're recreating the, the past, so to speak. So our uniforms, typically teams will wear cotton uniforms because it's a friendlier fabric for laundering. And there are teams who have gone to the expense of doing all wool and, and really have done nice uniforms where the shirts are wool and piped in bright colors and the hats uh, match. And then their trousers might have a, a stripe down the leg or, you know, special buttons or something. But uh, a lot of teams had a belt that had their team name on it. There were a colorful addition to the uniform as well. So, and a monogram stamped on it with their team name. So the uniforms, though, like I said, mostly we make the concession of cotton over wool because of care and ease of uh, replacement in some cases because the wool uniforms can get kind of costly. When you have turnover on your team's uh, a lot of times you have two or three guys come and go and think back to Little League, what it was like for the coaches. I don't know. In our case, the coaches used to have to kind of manage the uniforms as well. So just one less thing you have to do if you make the uniforms sort of affordable, easy to care for and and let the players, you know, own them themselves instead of having to an expensive one where you would have to keep it with a team or something. Are there any other special pieces of equipment that you need in order to play, or is it just your typical baseball stuff, you know, bat, ball, and glove? Well, one of the things I like about the 1860 rule in particular, just the difference between 1860 and 1861, the rule book does not specify putting down foul lines from home plate to third base or home plate to first base. A lot of times what went in the rule book was just what people were practicing already. So what makes 1860 nice is if the rule book isn't telling you to put down the foul lines, it puts a little more burden on the umpire, but it sure makes setting up a field easier and you don't have to worry so much about where you set it up. Some of the teams that are fortunate enough to have open spaces can set their field up in a variety of locations and angles so really a bat a ball a plate for home a plate for the pitcher and three bases is all you need to play you'll notice i left out gloves because that's one of the things that's unique about a lot of team eras that the teams are playing is it it was still barehanded in 1860 it was definitely barehanded by 1864 Five or so, there was some talk of gloves or people putting on doeskin leather gloves with padding in them, like a catcher maybe. A fingerless work glove started to find its way into the sport by the 70s 
and uh, Albert Spalding, who was a pitcher for the Chicago baseball team, and then later for the Boston baseball team, he was credited with sort of bringing the first uh, mass-produced glove to uh, baseball, I think, around 1876, the same year the National League was founded. If that's the case, you know, I think about some of these more modern-day players. You know, growing up in Ohio, I think of former Indian shortstop Omar Vizquel, who was a defensive wizard, who was always impressing the crowds with his ability to bare handballs and, and throw people out. But that was just an ordinary occurrence back in the day, it sounds like. It's sort of an everyday occurrence for us. That's right. I mean, you imagine a, a catcher catching foul tips and things without a glove on. They're, we've seen some photographs of old catchers uh, in their later years, how their fingers are kind of bent and twisted from from playing. I think there was even a poem, uh, something about the catcher no cage upon my face or mattress upon my chest. And it was sort of an ode to the days before there was catching equipment and the, you know, and the masculinity and the, uh, the brave and sturdy catcher. That's crazy. Does he still stand like right behind where the batter is with the umpire or do they stand at some distance beyond that? So the recommendation was for him to play probably about 15 feet behind the plate when there were no runners on base, because then he could catch the pitcher's toss on one bounce and he wouldn't have to uh, take the impact of that throw. When there were runners on base, Chadwick encouraged the catcher to move up, and that was in an effort to make a play. There's a little bit of internal controversy with vintage baseball clubs today that the stealing was not something we first did when we started. And there was a variety of reasons, including there was a group that didn't really know what it looked like. And so we've tried to kind of put it into the game and sometimes imposing artificial restrictions just so that it doesn't look like a little league game with guys just running around the bases <laughs> willy-nilly. But the accurate way to play would be for runners to leave at any time when the pitcher is in his motion. The pitcher, we believe, would probably have the uh, option to make a play on a base runner. The balk rule actually came into existence because of people moving from their base. A lot of times I like to refer to it as when we play a game, I'll say we'll be running today. And they say, well, are we going to steal bases? And I say, no, we're, we're running because the term stealing a base was not a common baseball term in the early years. Stealing a base would be a description of a news reporter. He would say the person stole his second. So it wasn't really it wasn't stealing a base in the sense that that's what you called it. It was just considered running or making your base. The. Um, just as a little bit of an aside, when scoring, um, the runner gets all the credit for the scoring. The batters didn't get credit, you know, like with RBIs originally. They felt that the person who was running should get all the credit for the uh, for making the base and that uh, it was your responsibility to try and get home as the runner no matter what the batters were doing behind you. So that's why there was quite a bit more running and sort of freewheeling around the bases. That's really interesting because in the modern game, the emphasis has kind of been on the exact opposite where the hitter, it's incumbent on them to 
get the runners all the way around. And instead of playing something like hit and run or trying to steal a bunch of bases, it's kind of evolved into just go station to station and try to let your hitters knock it out of the park and score that way. Uh, speaking of statistics, was there any kind of uniform statistics that were kept back in vintage baseball? Early baseball statistics, let's place it about the 1840s. They're, the scorebook of the Knickerbocker Club is at the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, and we've seen copies of it. And there was a rudimentary scorecard where there was a code that was created as sort of a one, two, three kind of meant different things. But the way my team keeps statistics is we'll just put a dot next to the batter's name in a in a grid, just like with the innings and the and the players' names. But if you scored, you got an O or a circle. If you made the first out, you got a one. If you made the second out, it was a two and the third out a three. And that was pretty much all we keep for a box score. And I got that idea from, this is one of those things I, I don't remember the exact source, but it was one of the early things that I was taught or learned as we were going through sort of learning the game with my team. I have a twin brother and he started playing vintage baseball the same time I did. Actually, he score kept for that original game that the the Canal Fulton team played. And we talk about the reference box I have here at home. It's full of all these baseball books. And we were talking about something the other day. And I said, well, I think it's at the bottom of the three foot tall reference box. And it's my reference box because I reference that's where the stuff is. I I can never find or cite the exact uh, quotation. Yeah, you know, it's down in there somewhere. So what is your team? You just referenced the Canal Fulton team. Right. So I began a team back in 1994. We played a home and away game with a team from the Ohio Historical Society in Columbus. Their name was the Ohio Village Muffins. Back then, a muffin was someone who was not very good or created errors when he played. If you if you made an error, it was called a muff. So the people who were not so skilled players were called muffins. So I put together a group from the Canal Fulton Heritage Society. We had just launched the St. Helena 3 canal boat in Canal Fulton like a year or so before. And we were looking for new things to do and bring more people to the to the area, to, to the park. And, and it seemed like an ideal thing to be playing baseball in the park there, have the canal boat go by in the background. The park we play at is situated between the Tuscarawas River and the Ohio and Erie Canal. It just seemed like this has to be where somebody would have played baseball back in the 1860s. And being as we're from a canal town, to answer your question, our team name is the Mules. We're the Fulton Mules. We dropped the canal part as the early town that was founded in the area on the east bank of the canal was the town of Fulton. And even well up into the 20th century, people still referred to just as Fulton informally. And uh, we formed the Fulton Mules and we have tan trousers and checkered boatman's shirts and black hat with a white star on top. We wore black ties and had a, a black sash that went around our waist with a mule embroidered on it as sort of a, uh, just sort of a club symbol, something that tied us all together and made us look like we were all one group. Now, whether a sash was 100% authentic or not, 
I don't know. We took a little bit of liberty with that part of the uniform, but we do know that when teams played each other back then, they would sometimes pin a ribbon on their shirt of different colors so that you knew the blue team versus the red team. And, and so we thought that we weren't stretching it too far to have, uh, you know, just a, a black sash tied around our waist. It's sort of like they would have a ceremonial sword or ceremonial sash for things like that. So that's the kind of origin of the Fulton Mules. We, we played in home and away in 94 and 95. We had our first season. We scheduled like 16 different games and we had three goals when we started and we met all three goals and we've been having a ball ever since. And at one time we, we were kind of the, we felt, we felt pretty honored because a lot of the teams that we like to play would call us first and say, Hey, we got this great game coming up and we want to play you guys. One of those occasions was when life magazine came to Columbus to the Ohio historical society. They said, we needed an opponent and you were the guys we thought of. It seems like a lot of the teams in the vintage baseball, like you were describing, the Muffins have kind of a historical context to their name, as well as the Mules being Canal Fulton and being between the Canal and the Tuscarawas River, like you were saying. It also seems that the minor league teams are going to more of these kind of off-the-wall names. So like you have the Akron Rubber Ducks, you have the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, you have the Altoona Curve, you got the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp, the Richmond Flying Squirrels, where you've got a lot of these really unique nicknames, and I rather enjoy it. Yeah, that's right. The Those names are more fun baseball names are kind of interesting i think that a lot of our vintage teams probably take some liberty with what would have been historically authentic for their era sometimes a club will know that there was a team you know baseball being played in their town during a certain year so in some cases maybe the maybe the reference material they find is the 1870s but they want to play the 1860 rules because that's what everyone around them is playing. So sometimes, you know, there's a little bit of liberty with that. Real baseball club names included things like Putnam's, which were an insurance group who formed a, uh, a baseball organization. There was the Eagles and the Gotham's from New York. The Knickerbockers were from New York. People were named in some cases by the Red Stockings because of their uniforms. In the 1870s, it was popular to call everybody by whatever color of their stocking was. Obviously, there was the white stockings and the red stockings, and there was the browns and the blues and the old golds and and different names like that. But you didn't – I think uh, it wasn't until like the early 1900s when the Tigers kind of get credit for kind of the modern – something other than – a monogram on their hats. They had a tiger one year in the early 1900s, I think, and that's when they get credit for that. Baseball Hall of Fame has a really nice page on their website called Dress to the Nines, which reviews uniforms. Do you know if the White Sox have ever actually had white socks? Because my entire life, they've just worn black socks. Yeah, isn't that interesting that the even the couple years in the 60s when they wore red, they wore red socks and, you know, white uniforms, but um, the white stockings, yeah, the Chicago Nationals originally wore an all-white uniform. One of the craziest variations of baseball uniforms probably had to be, I think it was 1886, 
and it might have been more popular in the American Association than the National League, but I think both of them tried it, and it lasted longer in the American Association. But they came up with a system where the shirts and the hats matched, and they designated the position the player on the field played. So when they came back up to bat, I guess would be the only – I mean, you would know what position they played when they're in the field – but when they came back up as a as a batter, uh, this this system of colors would tell you which player it was. I guess maybe the same way a number does now. So the system was kind of crazy because the pitcher wore, I believe, a solid color, and the catcher was a solid color. The first baseman was red and white striped the second baseman i think was black and orange stripe there was a light blue there was a green one of the people who was a detractor didn't like the idea referred to it as the players <laughs> looking like a dutch bed of tulips because of all the colors out in the field so yeah that that system didn't last long i think it maybe only lasted half a season but uh, it's a common anomaly if you look up those spalding shirts it comes up, it's fairly easy to find, but not a lot of reference other than one or two pictures of the players wearing it. One of the pictures is, is tinted even with coloring just so you can get the get the idea of the vibrance. Rugby actually has a somewhat similar thing that they do, but definitely not to the same degree. But every team will have a set of numbers that will be assigned to a certain position. So like one of the positions is called a fly half. And every fly half that plays rugby will be assigned the number 10. So you can kind of visually see on the field, oh, that's number 10. He's a fly half kind of thing. But what you were just describing takes it to a whole nother level with all these designs and colors and everything. It must have been a crazy sight. Sure. Seeing things like checkered socks or striped socks later at the end of the 19th, century which was 1800s you will you'll find some uniform variations like that having a, a lot of uh, reference material obviously photography took off in the 70s up through 1900s um, you know before that you see some crazy variations of things but you don't really know where they're from or, or you know if it's a country team or if it's an organized team or to bring things back to more modern day, who was your favorite player growing up? Well, there's sort of a love-hate in admitting this, but we always, in my house, we always rooted for the home team, which was the Cleveland Indians. But we could have a favorite of another team, and mine happened to be the Yankees. I started watching baseball in 1977, was the first year I can remember seeing baseball and getting interested in it. And the, the Yankees were a big deal in the late seventies. And, and so the, the Yankees were my team and the hometown guy, Thurman Munson was probably one of my favorites. He was just hard nosed ball player. He looked the part and, you know, and knowing that he was from Canton, Ohio meant a little something. So that was, uh, he was probably one of our, my favorites and one of our favorites here at the house. But with the, uh, with the Indians, I have to mention that he wasn't a player at the time, but one of my favorites was Hal Narragon because Hal ran a sporting goods shop in Barberton and that's where we used to buy our tennis shoes. And so we'd go in there and Hal had three seats 
stadium seats painted up that you sat in to try your tennis shoes on one for each of the major league teams he played for. And, uh, my dad was a, was a junior high coach in Barberton. And so that's how he knew how. And I guess back then you could buy tickets at a place like a sporting goods store. And that's how I remember us getting tickets to go to some of the games. I like hearing all those little mini stories about the local connections. Cause like you just said, you have this guy playing professional baseball and then he ends up owning the local sporting goods store. As far as my favorite player goes growing up, you know, like I already mentioned, you know, growing up watching the Cleveland Indians, the, them being my favorite team, my favorite player was Omar Vizquel. And, you know, those teams through the 90s, I was kind of lucky. I got to avoid all of the turmoil in the 70s and 80s from the Indians just getting their butts kicked all the time. But those 90s teams I grew up with were just amazing with guys like Kenny Lofton, Jim Tomey, Travis Fryman, David Justice, Manny Ramirez, Albert Bell. I mean, th- those teams were just loaded. It was a great time to watch the Indians, that's for sure. After all those years of watching them through the 70s and wondering, you know, are these really <laughs> the same guys that won a World Series? <laughs> Even though it was back in, in, in 48. But, uh, yeah, we had a lot of a lot of games up at the stadium where where you just kind of – you went to see the other team sometimes. <laughs> But that's why I say you always, you always, first rule is you cheer for your home team um, unless it's your other team. And and we were lucky when we were kids around that same time, we went on an East Coast vacation uh, over Easter and we went to a game to see the Indians play Boston at Fenway Park. And then on the way home uh, within that same trip, a couple of days, we drove through Cooperstown on the way home and got to see the Hall of Fame. So that was really a big treat. I don't know where she got it, but somehow my mom got a hold of a copy of Bob Feller's Little Black Book of Baseball Knowledge, and it's a signed copy. So that's one of my most prized baseball possessions. Yeah, he was a character. He was no nonsense and always talked about the way they played the game in his day and how guys aren't quite the same. You know, I always appreciated that. The, the more I've watched baseball, the more I appreciated his his comments of uh, back in my day, you know, and he always had a back in my day story. So he was fun to listen to. So we've been talking a little bit about baseball history and baseball history is just littered with like these little quirky nuggets of information. Do you have any that come to mind? For, like, for example, there was a guy who played for the Tigers back around the turn of the century, early 1900s, and his name was Herman Schaefer. And he was famous for stealing first base after he had already attained second base. So he he went backwards on the base path. And kind of the idea behind it was they were playing the Indians and there was a guy on third base. It was the ninth inning and they were trying to get the winning run home. So he's trying to entice the catcher to throw down to second base so that they could score the runner from third. So he steals second, catcher doesn't throw. So then on the next play, he goes back to first base to try to get him to throw again. The catcher doesn't throw it. And then so again, he tries to steal second again from first base again. And this time the catcher throws down and they're able to get the run home from from third base. So that was just kind of one of those quirky things that will probably never happen in Major League Baseball. Probably not. And those are the kind of things that rules get made for. (laughs) Something quirky like that that could be attributed to 19th century baseball there's a legend back then to enter the game all you had to do is declare yourself uh, not not in all situations originally 
you brought nine people to the game and those nine had to play the game unless of sickness or injury. They weren't allowed a substitution. But this other rule later in the 19th century, if you declared yourself in the game, then you could go into the game. And one of the legends is, and I think it might have been Mike King Kelly, his nickname was King, that there was a pop fly over top of the bench. And Mike Kelly stood up and announced himself, Kelly in for so-and-so. And he made the catch and argued that it should be declared an out. So I think that's something that you wouldn't see happen again today. Well, that's a great one. That's a, that's an interesting story. To uh, wrap up here, one last thing is, if somebody would like to play a game of vintage baseball, how would they get involved? Where can you find teams? That sort of thing. I can uh, tell you the websites again for, for reference. You know, Vintage Baseball Association, vbba.org, is a national group of clubs that try and stay in touch with each other and share information, rules, and uh, and how they play the game. That's one place where you can find out about other teams sort of all in one spot. Another way to find out more, at least from a local level here, Canal Fulton, the Canal Fulton Mules Vintage Baseball Club has a Facebook page. And there are an unlimited number of other clubs you can find by searching Facebook and vintage baseball. So I think that gives people a good place to start and, you know, find one of those groups call. And I've not known too many clubs that didn't need an extra player every now and again, you would think to play baseball with nine guys, it wouldn't be too hard to, to gather that many up, but, uh, but getting regular commitments uh, to play sometimes is a little bit of a challenge. So we've often taken guys in on the sideline if we were short a player, you know, say, hey, why don't you come in and play with us today? We're looking for an extra guy. So uh, there's a few people who have their beginnings of vintage baseball like that. You know, they were they were just there to watch a game, and next thing you know, they were playing. And that's the kind of guys you'll find who are involved in this hobby, which I consider a hobby as much as a sport. You know, the idea is to educate and entertain and try and recreate the game as best we can. All right. With that, Ed, I thank you for coming on the podcast and allowing us to probe the depths of your baseball knowledge and getting to learn how the game was played from the 1860s and even some of the more modern day and kind of quirky little nuggets of information that you gave us. I will definitely link to all the different websites and everything that you talked about so people can find you easily. And I, I thank you again for coming on. That's great, Kyle. I appreciate you asking me. And obviously baseball is one of those topics you can just sit and talk forever about. And hopefully your listeners are getting some uh, good hot stove time. And they call that, that comes from the guys who used to sit around the hot stove in the wintertime talking about baseball so that was a term i didn't know when i went into vintage baseball what hot stove was but it made complete sense when when i got involved and and they talked about the talking all year long about baseball so thanks for the opportunity to talk all right thanks again ed now we're going to flip over and i'm going to share some of my thoughts about what we just heard i definitely think this will be one of the hobbies that 
we've learned about so far in the podcast where I will definitely try and and do. You know, I'm a huge baseball fan. One of my favorite sports growing up. I just love listening to games on the radio, participating in games, hitting, throwing, pitching, just the whole nine yards. Love it. I'm also a big history buff, so this is, you know, right down my alley. Two different things that I love kind of converging into one different thing. The Mules are my hometown team, so I'll probably get down to the canal and and try to get into a game. If, if Ed needs some fill-in players, I would definitely enjoy getting out there and playing some of the historical baseball. With that, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Give us a like and a listen. Give us a review. We like hearing from you. You can find us at Claptrap Country on Facebook. We're now also on a new social media website called PocketNet, which is kind of blockchain-based. So going back to the cryptography episode with Joe Beck, you know, trying to get into that a little bit. It's kind of a small and upcoming social media platform, but we're on there now trying to build an audience. So we would appreciate if you came out there. You can also find us on Twitter. But uh, yeah, reach out. I'd be glad to hear from you. Maybe give us some pitches for what you'd like to hear some future episodes be about in just waiting to hear your feedback. We should be getting back into the groove of things. I got a ton of different interviews lined up, so we should be back into the groove now and getting one out every Thursday night. So with that, I will see you guys next week. Take care.